So, <laughs> I'll tell you now, I'm not a runner. I'm not a particularly healthy person in general in terms of uh, athletics. You can probably see the man stood before you. But a few months ago, I actually felt I should start running. So I went out jogging a few times, and I've kept it up pretty much. And I'll be honest, running does not come naturally to me. In fact, I can honestly say I spend most of my 30 minutes runtime praying, Lord, give me breath. Lord, get me home. But actually, on one of the runs I had about five weeks ago, I was running from Wixford to Bidford down, I think it's Grafton Lane, I think it is. It brings us back into the back end of town. And I'd probably been running three and a half, four K at this time. And as I came down the lane, the fields to the right opened up and I could see something which was a field of pumpkins. Now, that in itself this time of year is not unusual, but there was something in this field that I could see, that I could sense, but I didn't know what it was. And I was praying about it, and I felt the Lord was trying to say something. So I got home and said to Miriam, oh, it's a good run, so it was such a time, I feel terrible, but I think God was speaking. <laughs> Possibly he has a word for the following morning. Well, needless to say, I prayed about it, nothing came, and I wasn't prepared to put me in it. I just wanted to hear what the Lord had to say. So I just let it go. And then about a week later, I got an, an article, not from uh, the usual source we'd expect. Um, in fact, we might be able to bring this up on the screen. Uh, apologies, it is small writing. The words get bigger as we go through. And it says this, I am watching our squash and our pumpkin crops with increasing nervousness. The plants are loaded with fruit, but there are several weeks away from maturity. We would normally be harvesting the earlier varieties by now, but the vines are still green and the skin soft. Frosts late in May meant that some plants had to be resown, and the cool summer has further delayed maturity. There will come a point in October when we will have to bring the fruits into the barn and heap them to set them, to toughen the skins and to sweeten the flesh. While we wait, the local rabbits are nibbling away. I was taken back when I read that to the run. And okay, pumpkins are orange, the barn is orange. It was quite an easy step to see that maybe God was speaking to me through a field of pumpkins. And let me be clear, I am not calling you pumpkins. But I am this. I believe that God has shared that there are some amongst us who have been hardened in a bad way by the frost that came earlier this year, whether that's in pandemic or in the circumstances. I believe there are some amongst us who actually haven't come back into that warmth of the barn, that sense of his embrace and his love. And I think that there are some here this morning who still feel like the rabbits have nibbled away. And I actually, before I got to the message, this isn't part of the message, I'll tell you now, this is the bit before, I just want to ask us to stand together as one body with Christ at the head and just for asking God to let the countenance of his light, his word, lamp into our feet, his light, he is the light of the world. I know some people carve pumpkins next week, it's Halloween next week, but I tell you now, Jesus Christ, he is the light of the world. He is the one who is to be exalted and glorified in this town and in this place. So, <laughs> can I ask you to stand with me? Um, don't feel obliged, you don't have to, but my heart is just to pray for those of us who need more of the countenance of God's light, for those of us that need that embrace of his Holy Spirit, for those of us that need the rains to come and soften our hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Jesus Christ, would you come? Heavenly Father, we just invite you to come afresh. You are here, present amongst us. So, Lord Jesus, we just surrender our all to you. You are the light of the world.
You are the word become flesh. You have set a lamp before us, before our feet, for us to walk in your way and in your kingdom. And you've sent your Holy Spirit that we can be one with you, Lord, that you can fill us with your presence and your power, that we can bring glory to the one who is worthy of all praise. So this morning, I just start with this simple thing, that we are your body, that Christ, you are the head, and we surrender all else to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. On to the preach. And there's bad news. I was given my watch right at the beginning, but I didn't press start. So apologies. Next time, you're welcome to start it for me as well. But mental note, it's quarter two. Uh, mental note, I think I'm due to finish about ten past eleven. So, you'll probably sense there's a theme that's been coming through this morning, and the theme is really simple. The title of this morning's message is United in Love. Fairly simple, isn't it? United in Love. And it's actually quoting uh, Colossians 2. And the verse in Colossians 2 says, My goal is that we may be encouraged in heart, united in love. Let me say that again. My goal is that we might be encouraged in heart, united in love. Now, today's message, it is not a new word. I'm not saying I plagiarized it. I'm saying it is from the word of God, but it's three and a half thousand years old. It's actually from a sermon, a message from Moses that he gave. So maybe I am taking his words. I am taking his words. But it also sits squarely at the cross 2,000 years ago. It's a message rooted in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for each and every one of us who believe in him. And I also believe it's a message that's relevant for today. I think we need to hear again, to be reminded of who God is and what he has done for us. The verses that we're going to look at are from the book of Deuteronomy, and they've actually been really significant to Miriam and I. We have three grown-up daughters now. They've all pretty much left home, although, as they remind me, they're still studying, and we love it when they come home uh, during the term time. In fact, they can't come home enough for my liking at the moment. I miss them very, very, very much. But the verses have been really significant to us, and every year it seems to come back to this sense of sharing with our children what the Lord has done for us and what the Lord has done for them. And Deuteronomy, it may not be a book that we're overly familiar with. It's the fifth book of our Bible, the Old Testament. It's part of what they call the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And it's the fifth, the last of the books, and those that have been essentially assigned to Moses, although it's fair to say it's probable that Moses didn't write all of it. It was often his words or recollections of his writings that go into the book of Deuteronomy. In the Hebrew, it comes under the Torah. It's the same first five books of the, library, of the um, Bible. But it means words. Devarim is the Hebrew. And it means the words of Moses. Now, we don't know it as that. We know it as Deuteronomy, which means second law. And it's just a repeating of much of the laws that Moses had already told them in the first four books of the Bible, of second, third, and fourth in particular. Now, it's worth knowing where this story comes, and I promise we will get into the scriptures shortly, and you're probably trying to work out, where am I, when am I going to fill the blanks? We are very nearly there, for those of us that like to do that. See, Moses had brought the people, by God's mighty hand, by God's outstretched arm, out of Egypt. He'd brought them out of slavery, from under the Egyptians. And as they came out of the land, God brought them into the wilderness, literally the desert land. And whilst they were there, God was with them. 
God spoke to them. God was present with them and gave them the laws, gave them the Ten Commandments that we're very familiar with. But it went a bit wrong in the desert. The people didn't hear what God was saying. In fact, they rebelled against him. And they spent 40 years literally walking around and around and around the desert. And when we come to Deuteronomy, they've been there for the best part of 40 years. And Moses is literally looking into the promised land. But they're the wrong side of the River Jordan. They're not where God wanted them to be, which is in this land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses then, knowing that he wasn't going to go in the promised land, wanted to give them one last hurrah, one last sermon, one last message that said, these are the words, the words of the Lord that he gave me while we were in the desert. And Deuteronomy covers a summary of what happened. I promise we're going to get there shortly. Can we go up to the slides? You see, I want to just quickly explain where Deuteronomy sits in the story. Oh, it's all come in one go. Can we go back a step or four? If we can't, don't worry, it's just all in your face. Um, I could hold mine up, but that might be a bit small for you as well. So essentially, what you've got in chapters one to three, you've got the spies that were sent into the promised land. The 12 spies were sent in, but 10 came back and gave a really bad report. They basically said, hey, um, it ain't good there. We're not going to do well. Let's not go. And the people rebelled against God. So they spend 40 years in the wilderness. We then come to chapters four and five, where Moses is saying, hey, I know it's been tough, but the Lord alone is God. And there's this message again, this call to obedience and a reminder of the Ten Commandments. And then chapter six, which is the one that we're going to focus on, talks about how we should fear and know God, that we should listen and love God, and that we should teach each generation. I'm pleased to see a few of the youth in today because I'm, I, I genuinely, I shared some of this message to them in uh, Friday Night Youth a few weeks ago, just the love bit. We need to tell our children of the Lord's love for them. We've got to keep reminding our kids, don't lose sight of it, church. Our children are important and we should love them by teaching them of the word of God. In chapter seven to 26, it then picks up a reminder to love God only, that we are to serve the Lord our God. And then this is where it comes to the second law, Deuteronomy. There's a repetition of all the laws, um, laws about worship, about character, about marriage, about society, about civil laws, about justice, laws, laws, laws. And at the end of the book, in chapters 27 to 34, you've then got this, uh, this kind of exposition, as it were, this foretelling by Moses, where he says, hey, Israel, choose blessings or choose curses. Choose blessings by doing it my way, being obedient to what I say, or choose curses and go your own way and follow your own heart. But he then goes on to say that even if you do turn your back on God, there will be a time when repentant hearts can return to the Lord. And he goes on to foretell this lovely sense of a time will come where God will make a way that people will listen and will love. Which then brings us back nicely to the center of our chapter six. And it's a very familiar verse to us. It's familiar for two reasons, really. Um, one, because we've probably read Deuteronomy, but two, Jesus repeats it in the New Testament. This is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's Jesus' version of it. We'll come back to Moses' in a moment. 
But it was also big for another reason. In Jesus' day, this was already a big deal. It wasn't just that Jesus said it and, hey, um, all of a sudden it means something. It meant something to the people of his day, to Israel, to the Jews. It was what is known as the Shema. And Shema is just a fun Hebrew word. It just means to listen, to listen with one's ears. Though in the context of Deuteronomy 6, it takes on more meaning. It takes on the meaning of Shema Israel. And what happened there is the Jews would hear it. They say, hear Israel. It meant to listen and obey. Listen and obey. And more than that, it meant a listening that required action, a response, not just listening with your ears. Um, We often read in the New Testament, James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's a similar sense that we get in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was to listen and to obey. And actually, it became a prayer, the Shema prayer, is still today, by many practicing Jews, prayed twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. They would say, the Shema Israel, love the Lord your God the Lord, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. Amen, Mike. Good. You can't go wrong with the word of God. That's what, well, you can, it appears. But um, you shouldn't go wrong with the word of God, he says. <laughs> oh, dear. Lord, keep me focused. So the Shema was this confession of faith. It was a confession of faith about the people and their walk with God. So finally, let's get into Deuteronomy 6. Hopefully on the big screen this time. These are the commands, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with a large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget Lord, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. Do not follow the other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. We're going to pause there. Um, Lord, would you reveal your word, this word to us this morning? 
Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to you? We love you. Lord, we love you and we wait upon you. Speak to us. And would our ears be quick to listen this morning to you and to your word and to your will? Amen. Do you know there's so much in these verses? Um, certainly too much for the next, I'm going to say 15 minutes, because um, it says I've been here 12, and I must have burned at least three or four at the beginning. But uh, in the event of a fire, don't worry. <sighs> there are three points that I do want to highlight, though, this morning. <laughs> Firstly, that Israel, God's people, were called to fear and know God. Secondly, that the people were to love God. And thirdly, that they were to remember God. Fear and know God. Love God. Remember God. So let's look at the first part. Um, The people were to fear and know God. You know, fear today is quite an unpopular word, I'd say. Uh, And I understand that. We have fears over our health, over our work, over our friendships, over our relationships. And actually, fear can so easily become overwhelming in our minds, in our thinking. It can so easily disable us. It can so easily undermine us and overwhelm us. I understand that. But I don't think that's what the Lord is talking about here. I actually think the scriptures teach that it's okay that we fear God, that it's okay that we fear him. In fact, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom that the fear of the Lord leads to knowledge, that actually, in the fear of the Lord, treasure is found. Now, I do want to probably underline that fear is not there to fill us with a sense of diminished sense of being or a sense of condemnation, but actually a fear that brings a reverence to God, a fear that acknowledges that he is holy, that he is righteous, that there is no one else under heaven or on earth like him, that actually convicts the heart and brings us to a place of repentance. That is an okay fear in the book, in the Bible. I think it's an okay word for today. It may not be popular, but I believe God wants us to know that it is okay to fear God. And I appreciate we're going to come to a New Testament perspective of Jesus Christ, but soon we're going to understand how much Jesus was willing to accept pain and hardship on the cross because of our love for us. You know, the primary reason, I think, that we see in these scriptures that we are to fear God is because he alone is the Lord. He is the Lord alone. There is no one else like him. There may be idols, there may be foreign gods, false gods, but none of them are alive or powerful. None of them are righteous or holy like the Lord our God is. And actually, it's the sense that why would we follow other gods who were made by human hands, literally, carved of wooden stone, when you can love an almighty God who is the Lord alone, who is alive. They'd seen him act in Egypt by mighty signs and wonders, the ending of the firstborn and with the Red Sea parting or Reed Sea, whichever one it was. They had seen God act in power. And actually, just seeing God in his awesome power, even on the mountainside when he met with Moses, the people were trembling. And yet the Lord calls us to fear him because it leads to a knowledge of him. Because if we don't fear God, if we go our own way, if we don't press into all that he is, the likelihood is we'll miss him. 
our hearts would be hardened and we wouldn't come to know the fullness that God has for each and every one of us. You see, his way, God's way, is the way to life. There is no other way. This message has been sitting heavy on me. I've shared with a couple for a few weeks because it is a message of life. And yet within it, there is a message that speaks of what happens if we don't choose life? What happens if we don't choose Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? What if we don't choose to have our hearts renewed and our spirits restored? Well, it's a hard thing to say that we need to fear and know God, but his way is the only way to life. And that we are called to serve him only, to not follow the other gods in the land. But what I love about the way it's been set up here in Deuteronomy 6 is it doesn't stop there. It comes to the important bit, the bit that is at the heart of this book, Deuteronomy, and actually it's the heart of God. And that is that when we follow his way, when we serve him only, that we are called into a relationship to know him and to love him. You know, I'm still amazed that God has made a way for me to love him. But we read in this chapter that we're called to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And by loving God with all our heart, can I just say, um, obviously when Jesus said it in the New Testament, um, they've separated the heart and the mind. When it was written here, the heart doesn't just mean our emotions, but also our mind, our thoughts. I mean, I often think about the fact that our hearts, our minds are so inextricably linked. Maybe that's why we're called to meditate on God with our mind. Maybe that's why we're to take every thought captive. Maybe that's why we're to be not anxious or uneasy because our minds and our hearts so easily get misled. But, but, as we love God with our heart and our mind and our thoughts, fully committed to him, he can speak his life and his truth into our lives. He can speak his grace and his mercy and his love into our lives. And as we come to later, we can speak the same love and grace and mercy into the lives of those around us. God desires that we love him with our soul. Again, this is our being, our essence. It's who we are. It includes our desires, our choices, and, dare I say, our will. You know, to surrender our desires and our passions to God is not easy. To say, I'm going to love God with all that I desire. To say that we acknowledge that the choices that are before us are maybe not all from God. That person may not be right for me. That food might not be right for me. That thing I watch or read might not be right for me. God gives us choices and he gives us a will. We can choose to follow God's will, God's heart. Your will be done, Lord, not mine. And God desired that the people love him, that they loved him with their souls, their physical body and their spirit, all given over to God. And thirdly, that we are called to love God with all our might. I like this one because it's not just strength alone, which is good because I'm pretty weak. I can tell you, I I am literally wanting to crawl into a corner and die after I've run 30 minutes and it's only just hit 5K on my watch. Um, I, I have very little strength. However, when we talk about loving God with all our might, it's not just my physical, muscular sense he's after. It's something much bigger. He's actually after the maximum amount that I can give my capacity, my everything. And more than that, I think God's after my potential. He's after everything that he wants me to be. 
us, not just strength alone, but our capacity and potential that God wants us to give to him, our past, our present, and our future, all surrendered to God, all given and laid before him. We're going to come on in a minute to how the people didn't do this. And when you think on how high a bar is set, it's almost of no wonder that the people struggled to love God so fully with their hearts and soul and mind. But I do want to bring us to our third point, and that is that the people were to remember God, and not just occasionally to remember God. It's really clear in the text when we look at it. They were firstly to remember God to our children and to our children's children. Guys, we need to put our hands up and say, our own children and our church children, we need more people on the kids' teams. These children are precious to the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm not in my notes here, and forgive me, I'm, I'm not trying to heavy sell here. I've had such blessing of being with the kids and with the youth this last month. I assure you, you will get much from it. But God wants us to love and to teach our children, our children's children. Get in on it, because God has blessing and failure in that place. Back to my notes. Um, I do love, though, the general, generational blessing that we're called to teach. And that also we're called to remember him all the time. In the morning, it says, as you rise. In the evening, as you lie down. It's probably why Jews still pray that Shema prayer twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. But also to remember God in every situation. It talks about when we we're at home. It talks about when we are out. It talks about the gates, which is often where the people worked or met to work. So when we we're at work, we can remember God. We can remember God in every situation, every circumstance. But as we predicted, it didn't go well for Israel. In fact, um, as soon as they went into the land, which happened not long after, Joshua went in and the walls were brought down of Jericho and the people began a campaign to take the land. It wasn't long before they started following other gods, other idols. And actually, it wasn't long that they forgot to fear the Lord. It wasn't long that they forgot to know the Lord, to serve him. Things were good. It was a land of milk and honey. There was plenty there. Things that they hadn't dug and planted were fruitful. But Moses foretold and it came about that the people rejected God's way. They turned from him and they received the curses, not the blessings. In fact, eventually the people were divided as a nation, Israel and Judah. And then the nations were then exiled. They were taken in by various things or various countries, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians. But after time, as Moses also predicted, the people would come back to the land, to Israel, and that God would send a saviour, the one that we've talked about, the Messiah, the light of the world, that God would send a redeemer, which brings us to 2,000 years ago, to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would come and undo all the wrongs that had happened, he would be able to put right. In fact, rather than needing the blood of an animal slain, it would be the blood of Jesus Christ that would save the repentant heart that Moses spoke of. And this genuinely does bring me back to my Colossians' desire that we may be encouraged in heart and united in love. It's not meant to sound like a heavy word this morning, but it is a word that says, God loves you. God loves you so much that he would send his one and only son to die for you. That he would die a death, even death on a cross for you and for me. That is the perspective, the lens that we see this Deuteronomy 6 story. Because Jesus died for me, because he died for you, we can fear God. We can know God. We can walk with him and talk with him and commune with him 
through his Son and through his Holy Spirit. We can love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And we can remember God in every circumstance, in every situation. We can remember God. To our children, yes, but also anywhere the Lord takes us. Because God has revealed a better way through Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But the pattern hasn't changed. The pattern is still there that was there in Deuteronomy 6, that God calls us to listen and to obey. To love him with our all. With our all. It doesn't need the end bit to love him with our all. See, God established a new covenant. One that was no longer needed to keep the regulations and all the laws. No longer would we have to rely on the blood of animals. But he created a new covenant, one of heart and spirit. We today sit here because, by the grace of God, we are part of that new covenant, one of the heart and of the spirit. And we're going to turn to Hebrews 8, although it's actually referencing Jeremiah 31, I believe. Certainly Jeremiah. Hebrews 8. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hands to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the seal of the covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. I no longer need to attain God's blessing by works, but by the grace alone that comes from his death. And do you know what I love? That he takes away my sins he takes away my sins. I could even say past, present, and future, if I dare. He takes them away, and in its place, he gives me his good and pleasing will. He writes it on my heart so that I would know him and that I would know his ways. And more than that, it says it, that God would give me a new spirit, his spirit, his Holy Spirit. And um, Can we pull up Ezekiel 36? I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Do you know, I love that we have a new covenant, one of the heart and spirit, and that because of that, actually, now I can love God. And loving God leads to action. It leads to action. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. In fact, let me read another chapter on love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. 
Originally, I was just going to put the first half of our church. I'm going to say it as I see. We need to hear the full amount of what it means to love God. I will read it again, the first half and the second half. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I'm not calling us to be perfect, but I am saying that if we are his body and Christ is the head and we're called to love him and to love one another, which we'll come to in a minute, then God has made a way for us to do that. And this is the way that he has given us his Holy Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So let us keep in step with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And may I ask the communion team to come forward as well, please. I've got another minute or so to go. I see no way of closing this message on Deuteronomy 6 other than at the place of communion. I think communion for us as individuals, that we have the bread and wine to remember what God has done for us, but also the communion that we have as one body in Christ with Jesus as the head. You see, here's my final point that because God first loved us, because he first loved us, we can love God with all our heart and soul and strength. It's in the verses. I'm not going to quote all the verses. We can love our family. Husbands, love your wives. Let me say again. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Titus, wives, love your husbands. Parents, love your children. We're called to love our family, and God makes it possible. He has made the way. We're also called to love believers. We are a living temple. You and I, we are stones of a living temple built up for God's kingdom and God's glory. And the word of God says that we should and must love the family of believers. 1 Peter 2. But it goes on. I love the word one another in the Bible, that we are to love one another. It, it comes repeatedly in Scripture. In the New Testament, love one another, love one another, love one another. Last two. We're called to love our neighbours. Now, the good news is that I think that's a whole other sermon. It's actually based not on Deuteronomy, but it's based on uh, numbers, and it's essentially a great message. It's a second commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts on my scent and love your neighbours. I think that's another sermon for another day. But lastly, we are called to love our enemies. So if you have set your heart against somebody, if you have set your heart in a place of hardness, or if you need to be reconciled to a person, God has made a way for you to love your enemies through his Holy Spirit and through his blood that has given you a new heart.